August 30th, 2018, San Francisco. The Sales Development Conference. The first and only live conference 100% focused and dedicated to sales development. Join over 300 of the top minds in sales development for a full day of learning, forging new relationships, and creating the next generation of sales development excellence. This year, we have dedicated tracks for sales development leadership, as well as a track for individual sales development representatives, including a full day of ultra-useful hands-on training. Bring your whole team to get the tools, research, and connections you need to accelerate your career and push your sales development program forward. Accelerate your growth at the Sales Development Conference 2018. Go to tenboundcom slash conference to get your tickets today. That's tenboundcom slash conference. You're listening to the Sales Development Podcast, the only audio forum focused and dedicated 100% to sales development. If you care about growing your skills and getting more new sales appointments, pipeline, and closed one deals, you came to the right place. Subscribe to the show on YouTube, iTunes, or Spreaker, and be sure to go back and listen to all the episodes for the best strategies, tips, and tactics out there on running a high-performance sales development program. And now, your host, founder, and CEO of TenBound at TenBound.com, David Delaney. Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Sales Development Podcast. I am honored to have my next guest on the show. This is Mr. Brandon Bruce, the COO and co-founder of Cirrus Insight. How are you doing today, Brandon? Thanks for having me, David. Excited to be here. Oh, man, this is awesome. I'm really excited to unpack you know, how you got into the entrepreneurship world and you know what you're doing at Serious Insight. But if folks are not familiar with you, can you give us the uh, quick snapshot on who Brandon Bruce is and what you're doing at Serious Insight? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I got to commend you at pronouncing Serious Insight properly because <laughs> last year alone, and some of these were at live conferences and some were, some were recorded demos and podcasts, but I was introduced in, in various ways, sometimes serious insight, which I don't mind because we're like a serious piece of software for salespeople. So I get that. There's also just Cyrus, which is not quite right. That's just a mispronunciation. No big deal. I got introduced as Citrus Insight, (laughs) which I thought that's kind of cool. Like if we were based in Florida, maybe, right? So we could provide insight into the citrus industry. We we did an orange juice video on YouTube for April Fool's that year. Because we, we, we like that one. And then my favorite one from last year, and this was at a live event. So I said, we like to you know, welcome Brandon, who started a really neat company you know, a few years ago called Circus Insight. So, so I started my talk and I just said, we provide insight to the few people that are still in the circus business, which is kind of a dying business, but nevertheless entertains children worldwide. And, uh, and then pivoted into talking about what we actually do, uh, which is to build software that connects the inbox and the calendar with Salesforce. So we started almost seven years ago. Ryan Huff, my co-founder, is the architect of the application. And he saw a gap in the market, right? So classic entrepreneurial story, a gap in the market and inefficiency and said, hey, salespeople, all of us are living in the inbox. And Ryan and I happen to use Gmail. He said, this is where we spend all of our time. But the data that we need about our customers and that we need to track about our customers is inside Salesforce in a separate browser tab. And you got to log in and search over there and high transaction, high volume salespeople, two, 300 emails today, sometimes more. And so switching back and forth between those two platforms all day long is like whiplash. 
So he started writing a program that would basically bring a Salesforce itself into your Gmail inbox. It puts a nice little side panel on the right-hand side of Gmail. So every time you send and receive an email, it shows you information about that prospect or that customer. And when we released it, it was the first app of its kind that connected Gmail with Salesforce back at the end of 2011. And yeah, it was great. People really took to it. They were like, hey, at the end of the day, our, our 3,000 plus customer reviews essentially boil down to two words, save time. Uh, it saves people time so that they can spend more time talking with customers, spend more time selling or spend more time doing anything, right? Let's say they knock out quota, then they can go to the golf course a little bit. But the main thing we do is give back time to our users and hopefully, you know, help them work productively, efficiently and close more deals. So that's kind of the, the quick round trip version of Serious Insight. But I grew up in a little tiny town called Los Olivos in Southern California. So it's in the, the middle of Santa Barbara County. And for those of the listeners who have watched a movie called Sideways with Paul Giamatti, oh my God. Buddy, go wine tasting, That's right? It's one of my favorite movies. Buddy's wedding. The, the, the first winery they go to in that movie is the Sanford Winery. And my only classmate in grade school was their daughter, Blakeney Sanford. So she and I were a class of two out what? in the sticks, right? So we went to a really small kind of little house in the prairie school called the family school, which was awesome. Very self-directed learning. You want to pick up a book and, you know, teach yourself algebra, which I did because I had a friend next to me who started teaching himself algebra and I was a little jealous and I was like, shoot, I should be able to pick that up. So we taught each other algebra and lots of hikes outdoors in the mountains and stuff like that. So it was a really cool place to go to school. And yeah, I think in some respects it was like entrepreneurial education, right? Because as a student, you could just say, I'm interested in this topic. I'd like to study it. Teachers would say, great. Let's, let's dig in. So huh. it's interesting to compare my experience a long time ago, going to school with some of the experiences now, which are very much aligned with standards and teaching the tests and so forth. And, and we, we never did that. We took the test, but they would just kind of come in in the morning and say, hey, we got to do this quick activity. It's just a test. It'll be fun. You know, knock it out and then we'll submit it for you. And it, it never occurred to us to be nervous about it or, or even particularly to care. It was just like, hey, we do the best we can. We know most of this stuff anyway. And so anyway, great, great educational experience. And I think in some respects that laid the foundation to be, you know, hopefully a, a free thinker that was open to ideas. And so when Ryan called me, you know, seven years ago, and this was, shoot, 12, you know, 11, 12 years after we had both graduated from UC Santa Barbara and cooked up lots of cool ideas for websites and apps and stuff back then, but never really launched a full-fledged startup, then I was super game to jump in with him because he's... He's wicked smart. And I thought, what a great opportunity to build, hopefully, a startup with a great friend. And so he and I have been running it here for the last seven years. And we built up a really great team of folks in Irvine, California, where Ryan lives now, and where I live now, which is in Knoxville, Tennessee, the eastern part of Tennessee near the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. So, Oh, wow. Okay. So anyway, you're, you're... I'll pause with that. That's a little quick intro into <laughs> where our company came from in small town California. Yeah, there's a, there's a few things about that. One is, if you guys haven't seen Sideways, I don't know, maybe it's just my sense of humor, but that's one of my favorite movies. And it's really raunchy and black, you know, black humor, but it's hilarious. And the, the quick connection that I have to that area, Brandon, is my, my brother-in-law is the owner of the Alisal Ranch, or I really? mean, his family. Yeah, it goes way back in their family, but they... You know, so I, I've got some familiarity. Sometimes we go there and hang out and stuff. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful spot. That is really cool. So, yeah, you know uh, that place. Alisal Ranch is where I learned to play tennis. Okay. <laughs> and so, as a kid, my brother and I basically spent all summers out at the Alisal Ranch. 
and they had a great deal for you know local kids where we could basically show up and if the if the courts weren't being used by guests because it's a super nice guest ranch right with horseback riding and archery and fishing and all this cool stuff so if it was, if the courts weren't otherwise reserved then we could go out there and play on the courts and then of course the pros were there to help give us tips and stuff but then the value that we could provide as people that were playing tennis like 8 10 hours a day was if a guest wanted to play and they didn't otherwise have a partner, then they could just point to us and say, hey, you know, Brandon or my brother, Zach, you know, go play with this person. They'd like to play nice. now or they, they want doubles. So you guys <laughs> split up and make it work, make it competitive, make it fun for them. And we were, of course, of course, like we want to play. And so, yeah, Alisal is a great spot. Gorgeous. I'll be going out there again, actually in like a month. So small world. It's a slice of heaven. I mean, if you guys on the call, if you haven't been out, I mean, it's a very unknown area in, in a lot of ways. I mean, the only th- way that people know about it is because of Neverland Ranch, right? That's right. <laughs> That's so, the- so, so, the grade, so the grade school I went to is directly <laughs> across the street from the ranch that Michael Jackson ended up buying and retitling Neverland Ranch. Right. <laughs> and hopefully so, you yeah. had you had a fence around your school. Because- <laughs> okay. yeah. so I mean, he had a zoo there. You know, so. He had a zoo there. He had a water park there. Right? What a weird it's stuff. Crazy. I, I never had the opportunity to visit, but some of my friends did. And they said it was incredible, right? It's like a theme park, but it's private property. So yeah, Neverland Ranch is kind of famous out there. And yeah, the Alisal is relatively close to a town called Solvang, which most people probably haven't heard of. But if you have heard of it, it's kind of known as being more Danish than Denmark. So if you go to Solvang, you're going to get Abel Skeever's little round uh, <laughs> circular pancakes and all sorts of other cool Danish culture cuisine and stuff. And it's, it's a fun place to visit. Now, this is really interesting. Now, you had that, that open education. And th- this is really interesting to me because it seems like the world that we're living in is so different than how the educational system is set up for kids in that it's, you know, it's very regimented. It's like, it's set up for the factory, you know, environment that we had hundreds of years ago. But, you know, we live in, in such a fluid and dynamic world today that it seems like the way that your education was structured is more suitable for, you know, 2018. Well, one way I'll put it is that frequently, if there are budget constraints in an education system, then the first things to get cut will be like the extracurriculars, right? So uh, we're going to cut down on field trips and then, you know, art isn't really tested. So we're going to go ahead and cut art and music. That's not on the test. So we'll cut the music and maybe even cut back on some of the outside activities and stuff. If you make a list of the things that folks would cut, those are the things that I think comprise the most important parts of education. It's like, because if you, if you're studying music, you're learning math, whether you kind of, you know it or not. And if you're doing art, you're being creative. You're figuring out what, what you like and you're able to react to what other people are creating. And I don't know. I think those are the things that, that I consider to be the most important. Now that's all to say, I'm one of those people and there's probably listeners on the podcast that feel the same way. I've always felt like my quote unquote formal resume is kind of a mess because there's a lot of like random stuff on there. It doesn't tell a linear story. You know, here's a person from the time that they were, you know, five knew exactly what they wanted to be when they grew up. I was like, I have no idea what I want to do. And so I did lots of kind of random things, right? Trips to go to a conference or got this fellowship or went to school and then took a year off to travel and then did this other thing. And so when you read it, you know, as I got into the working world, I was kind of like, uh oh, I don't know that I can communicate 
well, where I think I could add value in a company, which is to say, if I could get an interview, I felt like I could communicate it, but it was just getting in the door. And what's been interesting is, is I feel like the, the entrepreneurial path has been a good one for me and a fulfilling one because it allows me to be a generalist and do lots of things, hopefully some of which I do relatively well, but I didn't through education become necessarily an expert in any one given path. I just had lots of diverse interests. And so I, I was actually reading an academic paper a couple weeks ago written by a couple economists. And I found it because I'm on the mailing list for a, an entrepreneur called Steve Blank that many people have probably heard of. He's, he's famous. He started a lot of huge companies in the Valley, now teaches entrepreneurship at Stanford. And so he cited this paper and the economist titled it Asymmetric Information and in Entrepreneurship. And to boil down you know, a 30-page paper with a lot of math in it, the, the overall point was a lot of people become entrepreneurs because the signals that they can convey to the market are not good enough, are not strong enough compared with the value that they think they otherwise bring. And so it's, it's really an economic Whoa. decision versus, a, well, I'm a risk taker, so I'm going to be an entrepreneur. And what's interesting is a lot of people will be like, you know, congratulations for being an entrepreneur. You know, thanks for taking that risk. And I always thought, like, I don't know that I'm a particularly risk-taking person. I didn't, I didn't, I haven't felt like that's a big part of my personality. Pretty fiscally conservative and stuff. I'm not just looking to take bets. But when I read this paper, I was like, oh, I totally get it. Because I always thought my resume is a mess in some respects. So how can I signal to the market what I think I can bring? Whereas entrepreneurship, you create your own signal. You're allowed to go, you know, free market economy. You can go out and see: Do I have a service or a good? that I can sell? Does it bring value to other companies? And if so, there can be a reward there. And so, yes, it is risky because income is much more variable. As an entrepreneur, you're going to get potentially higher highs, but almost invariably lower lows, especially in the early startup phase. That's for sure. But yeah, but it can be very fulfilling because you feel like you have maybe a little bit more control or agency over what's next, you know, over, over the destiny of the company. So that's been fun. No, that there's so many good points there. First of all, I'd never heard of Steve Blank's newsletter, so I'm going to definitely get on that. And it seems like that's something that people should know about. But, you know, I, I think, you know, the way that the world is changing now, that, you know, everyone to some extent has to become an entrepreneur. Because if, if you're... If you're sitting in your regular job and you're like, oh, I'm good, I've got my 401k, I'm locked in, I've got health insurance, everything's fine, and then all of a sudden the company disappears, it's like, well, no, actually, you were the one taking the risk because you didn't have anything on your own going to support you in case the one revenue stream that you had disappears. Yeah, no, I think that's an important point. And I think frequently people have referred to that as like, you know, creating a personal brand. And I think what's interesting about that is like, I'm a laggard, I suspect in terms of like, social networking, right? Like I don't do that much of it. I'm, I'm a, I have a lot of connections on LinkedIn, and I frequently message with people there. So plus one on that front. But I'm but I haven't pursued, you know, big Twitter followings or Instagram, etc. So in that sense, it's sort of like, uh Oh, you're behind on the personal brand side. But I like to kind of expand the definition like there's folks here in Knoxville and I'm friends with them. And I'm thinking of two of them in particular, Matt and Paul, that, that run and work for a mortgage company. And it's like their personal brand is they really care about their customers and they make the process of getting a mortgage, which 
for everyone that has done it can be a pretty fraught process because you're talking about probably the biggest purchase of your life into a process that's understandable and clear. And so you feel like you're getting a, a fair shake and you have a good line on what the future will bring. No surprises, right? And so you feel like, oh, okay, buying a house is hard enough and they make the mortgage part not the hardest part, which for most people it is. So they make that part streamlined and then the rest of it, the negotiating out the price and doing the negotiation through the realtors, et cetera, and the inspections and whatever may be harder. So I think that's cool. So they've built that personal brand where they're known for that so that regardless of what may happen in the industry or any given company, to, to your point, you know, they've got these skills that everyone knows them. Uh, their personal brand is they care about people and they can make something hard easier than it otherwise would be. And I think that is important for all of us to do. Gotcha. So, so it's not necessarily you have to, you know, have a side hustle where you're an entrepreneur on the side just in case your job, you know, disappears one day. It's more like it's all or it's, it's not and or. I mean, it's, it's and, you know, you're doing so well at your job and you have a reputation that's like out in the community that this is someone that you can really trust. They do a great job. And just in case the company dissolves one day, it's not like you're just completely starting from zero. I mean, you have your, I guess, brand or reputation, I guess, in the marketplace, right? That's a, yeah, that's a perfect description because it's, it's having, it's building up that reputation, which is not to say that the quote unquote side hustle or hobby or, you know, volunteering a lot serving on board, just having a diversity of experiences so that, you know, quote unquote, all of your eggs aren't in one basket, I think is valuable. And frankly, I think it's just kind of fun and part of a quote unquote, well-rounded existence so that you're not just doing one thing all day, unless you just happened. That's the only thing you ever want to do. Yeah. You know, for many of us, it's fun to try to find a passion so you can sink your teeth into something hundred percent and try to grow it. But it's also fun to have a few other things going on if for no other reason than just to provide yourself with a break. Because, you know, people also want to avoid burning out. Yeah. And I, I like that, you know, volunteering or being on boards and things like that. I don't think people really think about that beyond just, oh, you know, I got another thing on my calendar I got to do. It's, it's almost sounds like a chore, but it's, it's also, it's a great way to meet people. There's very, you know, it's a great networking opportunity and you feel really good, you know, about being, you know, out in the community helping people. So it's not like try to think of it, not just as a chore, but it's also, you know, a great way to expand your network and things like that, it seems. It is. And I think that, and, and I don't know how to attribute the quote, but it went, we just voted here in Knoxville. Knox County had primary elections yesterday. So great. So we voted. But this quote had to do with, you know, voting's one point in time in a given year or a couple times a year we vote. But by volunteering and getting involved in the community, we're essentially voting with our time. And, you know, if you volunteer frequently or a lot or causes that matter to you, the, the person whose quote it was, who I've now you know, butchered three or four times in a row, essentially said that's the greatest form of democracy because you're, you're using your time to advocate and actually take action on the things that matter to you. Yes. So I like that. And I think it's an important part of a, a personal culture, if you will, a company culture. I like you know, what Salesforce has done and what a lot of companies have done to shine a light on getting involved in the community and volunteering. And I think that's great. I think it makes for happier companies to work for, happier employees, happier customers. 
I think it's critical. Now, it's interesting because you mentioned how if you looked at your resume, there's a lot of different interests, different activities. You've got volunteer activities and things like that. And I remember, you know, for a long time, I looked at my resume. I was like, how am I going to explain this? You know, because it's right. so many different things and it, it does lend itself to entrepreneurship. So tell me more about that, you know, that, that thought that you got from the, from the newsletter, the a- asymmetrics in that, you know, you've got all these different interests. But then entrepreneurship is is taking all that and delivering the value that you know that you have, and maybe people don't necessarily see it because they're kind of confused by your resume. Well, one of my one of my favorite quotes, and I won't butcher this one. I have no idea who made it up or if it's just kind of apocryphal. But the uh, is an entrepreneur is someone who will work eighty hours so they don't have to work forty. <laughs> And I love that, that one, right? Because it's that like, oh, they awesome. could totally just find a place where they could work 40, but they, they viscerally don't want to. Like they want to find something that they can pour themselves into, uh, you know, for 80 hours. And I think that translates because that's a very difficult signal to convey. I mean, you can, you can put on your resume like, you know, I'm willing to work X number of hours, but it's sort of like, well, why? Or they might even have a company policy against doing that. Whereas in entrepreneurship, I mean, you're on your own. You've got to become, hopefully an expert in your field or find a couple angles or a niche, some asymmetry in the market that you can try to take advantage of. And so being willing to put in a lot of energy, a lot of hours, risk your own money, et cetera, those are differentiators. And that's value you can bring to the market that's very difficult to express through a resume or frankly, even through an interview. So entrepreneurship gives you the, the freedom to go out there and you know totally fail or have some level of success or hit a you know grand slam as we see some people doing, which is awesome. But it does give you the chance to do it. And that's you know, part of the beauty of our system here is that that opportunity exists. There's, there, there aren't structures that are going to tell you, hey, you can't, you can't start. Like You absolutely can't even give this a try. The system has been set up where there are ways to get involved. Some paths are harder than others, obviously, but it's open to everybody. And so it's a neat system in that respect. August 30th, 2018, San Francisco. The Sales Development Conference. The first and only live conference 100% focused and dedicated to sales development. Join over 300 of the top minds in sales development for a full day of learning, forging new relationships, and creating the next generation of sales development excellence. This year, we have dedicated tracks for sales development leadership, as well as a track for individual sales development representatives, including a full day of ultra-useful hands-on training. Bring your whole team to get the tools, research, and connections you need to accelerate your career and push your sales development program forward. Accelerate your growth at the Sales Development Conference 2018. Go to 10bound.com slash conference to get your tickets today. That's 10bound.com slash conference. And I I think some people struggle with it because they're like... You know, I I know that I have this passion for something, but I'm not sure that if the mar- the market will react. So I don't know if I want to start a business, you know, and then have it fail. And I'll just take this job, you know, because it'll pay the bills and I'll get the health insurance. But like, what was your process when Ryan came to you, or you guys were talking and you guys were trying different things, and then you finally found something? I think the market will react to this. I'm really interested in this. Let's go for it. Like, take us through that, you know, that thought process that you had when you were starting this with him. Yeah, I mean, for me, I couldn't not do it. So I I got really interested in, you know, kind of the concept of entrepreneurship and especially tech startups 
you know, toward the end of high school. So you're talking about for me, you know, 95, 96, and then going to UC Santa Barbara, 96 through 99. So this is the big rise of, you know, hey, this thing called the internet is here. Looks like it has some promise. Looks like it could do some cool things. And you started to get these, you know, amazing stories of disruptive startups, right? Coming in and changing industries. And then that was followed by the bust where it was like, well, some of them are transformative and going to stick around and some of them aren't going to work out, right? The business models weren't sustainable, et cetera. But I was captivated by the stories that I was reading, a lot of books, a lot of magazine articles about, hey, this is how this startup is trying to do it, and this is how their software works, et cetera. And I was like, this sounds so cool. Like, I liked every aspect of it. And so, yeah, I, it would have been fun to get fully involved back then. If I looked back at myself then, the fascination, the interest was there, but I didn't know, frankly, where to start. I wish I would have started but I didn't really know how. I mean, we were building websites and doing some basic stuff like that, which was great experience, but we weren't, I don't think, at least in my case, ready, mature enough, and have enough knowledge, et cetera, to necessarily connect the dots. You know, fast forward to you know, seven, eight years ago, we'd gotten some experience working at various companies and organizations. Both of us had gone to grad school. All these things kind of led up to a point where he said, hey, I think there's something here. So I started making phone calls and doing a bunch of research, and I said, I think you're right. So Ryan was busy coding the start of a great application. I was busy calling out potential partners, potential customers, and just saying, hey, you know, we'll do anything just to get you to use this and provide us some feedback. That's our only ask. We just want a bunch of feedback. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. Tell us if you think this is a thing people would even pay for. Right? There's a lot of great free software out there. And so we we're like, maybe this will be one of those. But people said, no, this adds substantial value. This is helping our salespeople save a lot of time. It's helping us to get really solid data in the Salesforce. So we can actually start running some management quality reports here and learn how our sales process works and execute our winning sales playbook. So yeah, that's pretty valuable to us, actually. We would pay you money for that. Okay. Now <laughs> we're cooking. <laughs> so yeah, I was in a hurry to launch kind of the official first version of the website beyond our one-page landing page that got us about a 1,000 pilot users. And so to get that initial website out, you know, it's always useful to have a deadline. And in my case... I knew that our second child, my son, was going to be born soon, right? You don't know the exact date, but I know he's going to be born soon. So I was like hustling to crank out this website. And I launched it. I remember when I launched it, it was at midnight. And then the next day, my son was born. So I just got the website out. Nice. And overall, it worked. And in some respects, it worked too well. So I had made the mistake of not de-indexing the site. So Google came and found it and indexed it and told the world about it. We weren't quite ready for that. But one of our pilot users found the website and found our pricing page and our sign-up page and put a credit card through. And Ryan had wired it so that if money came through, we would get a text message. So all of a sudden, the next day, we get a text message. Hey, some money just hit your bank account. We're like, what? Uh, how'd that happen, right? Something <laughs> nice. broke. Well, it actually worked. We hadn't tested it ourselves, but a customer had found it and put it in. So I called him and said, hey, we're not even going to charge you for it yet. You've been a pilot user. And we'll let you keep using it for several months before we officially launch. And he said, I'm going to end up buying it anyway. I think you guys are onto something. I think you've got plenty of bugs to fix. I think you've got lots of features to add. I'm excited about it. But tremendous value already. I'll be your first customer. And that was a big shot in the arm to say, oh, okay, well, let's take this thing to market then. And, and that conversation led to arguably the best decision we've made in seven years, which was simply to launch. So we had three to six months of roadmap out ahead of us things we wanted to build, things we knew we needed to build. 
And so we really debated, should we get all that cool stuff in there and then make a big splash because it'll be just right, which of course software is never just right. You do the best you can, you keep iterating on it. But that was tempting versus let's just launch like in two weeks. And so thankfully, based on that conversation, we just said, let's make it official, let's launch. And what was great about that is it was time. And also it allowed us at the time, seven years ago, to be first to market, which is not a panacea. It doesn't mean you're going to win, but it helped us to get some early mind share, which as you know, a two-person bootstrap startup company was very helpful. Got us a bunch of pilot users, got us a bunch of early customers on board, and got us three or four month head start over our first competitor getting into the market. And that was very valuable to us. That helped us a lot. So I'm thankful for that first customer and glad that we officially launched. So for those, yeah, on the podcast thinking about, hey, is it time? You know, the thing that my side hustle that I've built, should I actually get it out into the world? My, my, my experience, end of one, would be, yeah, it's pretty much the only way we found out what we had is to get it out there and get the real honest feedback from the market. Let's see if it works. Just ship it. And it, you know how people like in barbershops and stuff, they put the dollar, like the first dollar that they exactly. ever earned. You, you, yeah. you, you guys should frame that text message. Put- <laughs> That's true. Yeah. I wonder if I screenshotted that. I was going to say, go back and find it. How no, far you, back you gotta, text messages go? Go back 10 years. Yeah. But, you know, that, that first, you know, so you met up with Ryan and you guys were starting this company. Like, how, how, I, I'm sure people are curious if they have this idea and stuff. Did you just have to pay yourself out of your own pocket for months or years in order to build it? Or, I mean, you know, can't go get like venture funding if you're just starting out, right? So, how did you I guys mean, so, manage some, that? Some people, some people do. Yeah. All, some all people the power do. in the world to them, right? right? Really strong business plan, or the founders have a track record of, yeah. hey, these are folks that make it work. And so we should back them early. As first time founders, we, we didn't have that advantage. And we didn't really know exactly what our angle was going to be at the time, except that we thought there was value in integrating, you know, what what we thought and what has come to be true were, were fast growing cloud platforms in, in the case of Google and Salesforce. And now we also connect with Office 365 and mobile apps, et cetera. So we've tried to basically meet you in your inbox, whichever inbox you happen to use. But yeah, when we started, Ryan was still running a consulting firm in which he built Salesforce software for other companies. Uh, which was, you know, his firm was doing great, but he also really felt the desire to not only build software for other people, but product himself. And so, yeah, he was still drawing on that business. And I was still working full time doing fundraising for a college. And so I did that through the first several months after we had, you know, quote unquote launched and we're getting pilot feedback and so forth, you know, the classic nights and weekends figuring out, you know, is this software useful to people and what do they want to see in the future? And so we did that. And then we took a loan from family, right? So most, I think this is accurate. I don't have exact stats, but having gone to a number of conferences, most entrepreneurs get started on their own, on their own resources and, the, and with the support of family because family frequently are really, really good friends, but family, especially are the ones that are going to believe in you as a person, your ability to do work. So they have a lot more signals than you can possibly convey to the overall market because they know you for you. And so if they believe like, oh yeah, you're going to put in all this effort, all this work, you're going to pour yourself into it. Yeah, I'll back that. Whereas it's hard to communicate that to anybody else. So we benefited from family being willing to give us a loan to help to pay for some extra help to get the software to a point where we can launch it. 
And then thankfully, we were able to get to market and sign up customers and we were able to pay back that loan, I think, in three, four months. So at that point, we were kind of free and clear, still working some in our own jobs. And then we both left our jobs to do this 100% full time. And so, yeah, it's fair to say, you know, throughout essentially the first six, nine, 12 months of running a company, we just reinvest everything into the company. We weren't particularly making money. We were just keeping the lights on. After that, we were able to start taking a little bit of a draw, right? Sporadically, carefully, you know, how much can we take this month? We think everything will be fine in the company. And then later, especially after we were lucky enough to be able to add folks to the team, hire employees, then we started making a regular payroll, right? So we would include ourselves in that. And so that's, yeah, that's kind of the story, the the, the short version of the financial history of Sears Insight. Yeah, and I think a couple of takeaways is, you know, when dealing with family, it's it, that's always tough because it could go the opposite way where you lose all the money and then you have to go to Thanksgiving and like it yeah, becomes it's, really it's awkward. A, it's, a, it's a fraught process, right? There, there, you got to think about that. You got those pretty carefully, landlines. and I you know, hopefully effectively communicate the risks, which mm-hmm. I tried to do many times over, right? Like, hey, are we sure that everyone feels comfortable here? Because you know. Some things are under control, how hard we work, you know, hopefully we, we've got a good idea, et cetera. And then some things, you know, macro market forces, competitors that we don't even know about yet that are writing software that are, you know, hidden in the shadows that may come out at the same time or preempt our software or whatever. No idea, no control over that. And so it was important to us to communicate that, but also communicate a vision for this is what we think it can become. And so, yeah, hopefully when all is said and done, everyone will be, you know, happy to have been on the journey. And then the next thing is you went into business with your friend. You knew Ryan before. You knew he was really smart. He had technical skills. What do you think about going into business with your friend? I mean, that seems like it would be fraught with you know pitfalls as well. I, th- I think it can be. I think for us, it's been a tremendous advantage. So in, in the course of our you know seven years in business, we've seen some other partnerships, which can be, you know, two people, it could be several people that are part of a founding team. We've seen some of those break up to the point where some of those companies have disappeared, which again, is not, you know, the sky is falling, right? Some, some companies life of X and two X and three X and it happens. But I think for us, it's been really important for the two of us to have this grounding of, you know, an 18 year friendship so that we can give each other really honest feedback. Whereas, you know, you kind of get nervous talking to peers sometimes like, hey, the work that you just put out, you know, substandard, it's not going to cut it, right? That's not, that's not what we're going to do. But throughout our history, Ryan and I have both been able to, you know, critique, critique each other's work. Like, hey, we're going the wrong direction. Hey, hey that thing you did, that's, you know, we're not going to do that again. And it's like, okay, cool, because we know we're doing it. We're not being uh, critical in a self-interested way, right? He's not criticizing me because it makes him feel good or because it elevates him above me or anything like that. He's doing it because he wants the company to succeed. And so, and I'm borrowing some of that. Jeff Bezos from Amazon did an interview recently with Business Insider, and they asked him about, you know, being criticized. Right? So he's being criticized a lot by the president right now. And obviously Amazon's been criticized by lots of people over time. But he essentially broke down criticism into various buckets and said, look, if someone's criticizing you out of their own self-interest, you can segment that out. You can still evaluate it and take some of the criticism on the merits if there are any, but you know where they're coming from. Whereas if they just want it to be better, right? If they're criticizing Amazon or Serious Insight because they want the service to be better, they want the business to succeed, they want us as founders to succeed, 
then that's a good thing. And so I feel like our internal criticism has always been with that goal in mind. And it's been very beneficial on the related fronts of we can celebrate our victories together, which makes a lot more fun than celebrating just by yourself. (laughs) And we've been able, perhaps even more importantly, because usually the celebrations are pretty short-lived because it's just on to the next thing, right? But if there are, you know, the trying times, the roller coaster of the startup, the lows, right? Stuff happens. There, There was a big power outage, right? When we were about a year into the business that knocked out a decent portion of the internet at the time, right? Netflix went down, Instagram went down, we went down, this little tiny company. But we heard from all of our customers. So that was a trying time and it was helpful just to have another person there that was in the game. So yes, we could knock out the work faster together, but more importantly, we could kind of hold each other up on an emotional level where it's like, you know, one of us was crashing and the other one would be like, hey, we'll make it through this. Like, let's just keep working. And then the next time it's the other person's turn to kind of feel low about the whole thing. The other, hey, remember how we made it through the last time? Yeah, we're going to be good again. And it's hard to overestimate the value of having that second or third person in the room that can just kind of provide a stabilizing fact. It reminds me of, you know, Warren Buffett's got a million great quotes, but one of them, he was talking to a group and they said, hey, you know, share your secret of investing, right? From the, from the world's best investor. So he's got lots of secrets. They're like, what's the key? And they really teed it up because they expected him, I think, to say, you know, tolerance for risk, you know, ability to seize on opportunities, great research, perseverance, et cetera. And instead, he said, well, the key to the key to success in the market is emotional stability because the market's going to go up and down. And if you can stay stable and keep focused on the things that matter, then you've got a chance. And I, I like that. And that's what a partner provides. So, you know, a lot of people become solopreneurs, you know, because they've been in the workforce. And by a lot of people, I'm talking about me. <laughs> I've been in the workforce with other people telling them what to do for 10 or 20 years. And they're finally like, ah, okay, now I can like execute the vision that I have without having to deal with all these people. But you would probably recommend against that because you were able to, you, you, you know, the partnership brought a lot of value to your endeavor. It has, right? And I, to your example, mileage may vary. You know, <laughs> plenty of partnerships are not meant to work out or they just simply don't. <laughs> or folks split ways, right? It, it happens. And, and plenty of uh, solopreneurs, I like that word, are highly successful. And it's great because there's, there's nothing standing in the way of them and their vision. There's nobody else they have to check it with. It's just their way or the highway 100% of the time. And if they're heading in the right direction, it's awesome. Now, if they veer off course, then it may take longer to make a course correction. Who knows? So, yeah, I do think there's, as with most things, there's benefits and drawbacks. But in our case, very easy and safe for me to say, and hopefully Ryan would say the same thing, that it's been been a very fruitful partnership, that it's been more fun this way, and also it's worked this way. And I think it would have been hard to make it work otherwise. Well, this is some great advice. I mean, you know, we talk about all kinds of stuff on the Sales Development Podcast. I'm super interested in entrepreneurship and your journey, and I took a ton of notes here Brandon, I appreciate you coming on and and sharing your wisdom with us. And if anybody's, I noticed we hadn't even connected on LinkedIn yet. What's a good way to get in touch with you? What's the website? What's the LinkedIn? What's all that good stuff? Yeah, LinkedIn, I'm easy to find. Just search for Brandon Bruce or our website, seriousinsight.com. And to your point, I think it is very relevant to an audience of folks that are in sales. We're in sales. We do a lot of sales development, a lot of account management, a lot of strategic selling. The all of those folks are really are pretty entrepreneurial because there's not, in my experience, at least you can create the best winning playbook that you can, but there's still a lot of audibles 
called on the line. As soon as the customer picks up on the other end of the phone or replies that email, that customer is unique and you're making it up as you go. So being a generalist and being able to go off script pretty fast, meet them where they are, have a conversation, advance and see if your product or service is a good fit for them is a pretty dang entrepreneurial as far as it goes. So yeah, hopefully some of this has been pretty interesting. If folks want to connect, I'm yeah, easy to reach. Shoot me an email, Brandon at SiriusInsight.com. And if anyone finds themselves in Knoxville, Tennessee, then give us a shout. You can swing by the office and you know we'll feed you lunch on a Friday with our company lunch and we'll get a game of ping pong in. <laughs> nice, dude. That's amazing. And I, hey, I live out of my Gmail box. I think you know the, the problem that you're solving is something that everyone has. Nobody likes filling in forms on Salesforce. So keep up the good work, keep up the good fight and appreciate the invite. Thanks so much for being on the show, Brandon. You bet, David. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Sales Development Podcast, the only audio forum 100% focused and dedicated to sales development with your host, David Delaney. Please be sure to subscribe to the show on YouTube and take a moment to leave us a review on iTunes. Your support makes our show possible. If you are struggling with your sales development program, contact us at 10bound.com for a no-obligation exploratory call. Again, that's 10bound.com.